0: Good evening. So it's Q&A time, and I don't know about you, but I am just really excited about it. It's always a fun time together, and time when you can give a little input into what we talk about in the service. We try our best to get to all the questions. It's hard sometimes. I don't know that we ever get to all of them. But we'll certainly do our best, and if you have a question you'd like to text in during the service... Here's the number to do that with 205-699-2447. You text that in, and uh, as we can get them up on the screen, we'll answer them as time allows. Uh, So let's go ahead and get started. Uh, Whoa, I may have to turn around and read this one. In Numbers 12, 14, an offense and punishment are referenced as being part of the law. But I don't find it anywhere in the text where there are more details in the law that were not recorded. Could this just be an example where God was using some kind of judicial law from cases that Moses was a judge over? Uh, So let's go back and look at Numbers 12 and see what's going on there. This is where Miriam and Aaron were acting in a prejudicial way toward Moses' wife who was from Cush. And uh, they were being disrespectful to, no, to Moses. And Miriam was punished by being struck with leprosy. And so Aaron himself, or I'm, I'm sorry, Moses himself, pled with the Lord to heal her. In verse thirteen, 13, oh O God, please heal her, please. And this is Moses, the one who had been offended. So it's impressive, his compassion and mercy for his uh, sister who had wronged him. And the Lord said to Moses, If her father had but spat in her face, should she not be shamed for seven days? Let her be shut outside the camp for seven days, and after that she may be brought in again. So I think the question is saying, here we have an offense and a punishment that are referenced, but the person who asked the question couldn't find in the law of Moses the exact scenario that is happening here where if someone spits uh, if someone's father had spat in her face she would be shut off for seven days and uh, the person who asked the question is correct there isn't a specific law regarding what you do after somebody spits in your face but what you do find are some examples I wrote one down here, Deuteronomy 25, 9, where that was a way of cursing someone, uh, spitting in their face, showing disrespect to them. And uh, if a father is showing that kind of disrespect to his daughter, then there would be um, a curse on her that you know, God is reasoning with Moses she would at least need to be away from everyone for seven days if she had been considered rebellious enough to receive that kind of treatment from a parent. And that's the reasoning behind Miriam. She had done far worse than that. And uh, she deserved a greater penalty than um, if she had been the daughter who had been cursed by her father for some kind of rebellion. So it's just God reasoning saying, you know, she deserves some kind of punishment here. And I will heal her of her leprosy, but she needs to be outside the camp seven days. Now, another thought on the seven days is if you go back to the legislation regarding leprosy in Leviticus 13 and 14, it's very clear that when someone is unclean, declared unclean, they're to be away seven days. They're to come back and the priest is to look at them. And if the priest declares them clean, they're to go through a seven-day purification process. So there's a couple of things behind the rationale here probably that are being referenced, not a specific law that we can point to in uh, the five books of Moses. Next question. In 1 Samuel 16:14, was the evil spirit that came over Saul a demon possession or a mental illness? This is a good question. It's a hard one for me because I see evidence on both sides. On the side of a demon possession... It says that the Spirit of the Lord, capital S, the Spirit of the Lord, the Holy Spirit, left Saul. And so something spiritual and supernatural was going on there. And he was replaced by an evil spirit, right? So that makes you think one goes, another comes. The counterpart would be like the the one before it. Not to say demons are equal to the Holy Spirit, but you catch my drift. That's on one side of it. On the other side of it, though, is the fact that if, there, if this is a case of demon possession, it's the only one in 39 books of the Old Testament. No other place talks about evil spirits, demons possessing people in the Old Testament. It doesn't seem to be happening until Jesus comes on the scene, which is very logical to me because now you have Christ here who can do something about it. Nobody else can do anything about demon possessions and he can demonstrate his power over the spiritual forces of darkness so you see this this explosion of demon possession in matthew mark luke and john then just a couple cases in the book of acts and then it peters out with the death of the apostles and so i lean towards some kind of psychological issue going on with saul another thing in that regard is the cure for it was david's Music. They hired David to come in and play the lyre, play music. He was a skilled musician, and that soothed Saul's soul. Well, you know, whenever Jesus is casting out demons, and he approached somebody with a demon, he didn't pull out a trumpet and start playing a song, and the demon goes away. You know, that wasn't the cure for it. So this would be another one-of-a-kind situation where a lyre is able to draw the demon out, And then when he stops playing the music, it returns. It's just not looking like your usual case of demon possession. And so I would lean towards a mental illness over demon possession for those reasons. Is there any reason to think that some of David's men were giants of the Nephilim? They were certainly renowned, and David even had a short period of favorable relations with the Philistines. Okay, so uh, where do we start here? The the Nephilim are mentioned in Genesis chapter 6. And they are called men of renown. And then among David's mighty men, 2 Samuel 24, you read that these were men of renown. But renown means of great reputation. So it can be used of just about anybody who has a great deal of influence and power. So that doesn't necessarily connect the dots. Another problem with the theory that these were the neph- Nephilim, I'm going to struggle with that word, uh, is that David's mighty men famously did war with the Anakim. This is in 2 Samuel chapter 21. I think four giants from Gath which is where the sons of Anak, the Anakim, had settled. Goliath was another one of these. He'd be a fifth that you read about in 1 Samuel 17, the David slew. And so that tells me that there's no chance, really, that David's mighty men were among the Nephilim or the Anakim because they did war with them. And uh, Joshua had routed these people out of Judah in the hill country, And they ran to uh, Philistia uh, on the coast to cities like Gath. And the last remnant of them were there until the days of David. And the understanding I get from 2 Samuel is David and his mighty men wiped the rest of them out. David did have favorable relations from time to time with the Philistines. That's complicated, but I don't think it lends itself to the theory that he had giants among his men mighty men he certainly had giants among them in terms of character though and courage next question should the book of Enoch be in the Bible now some of you may be thinking wait there's a book of Enoch yes there's a book of Enoch and um, one of the arguments for the book of Enoch's inclusion in the canon of the Bible is that it's quoted or it's said to be quoted in Jude We were in Jude this morning. Turn over to Jude again. Look at verse 14. Jude 14 says, It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. So, in that passage, he says Enoch said this. But notice, he never says the book of Enoch said this. I think that's important. We don't know that he was quoting the book of Enoch here. We just know that he was quoting Enoch. This is in the book of Enoch, but so are a lot of other things. Okay, the book of Enoch is where we get this tradition, and it's a tradition, it's not an inspired account, that the sons of God who had children with the daughters of, of men in Genesis 6 that produced the Nephilim, uh, they, they were angels that had come down from heaven to have relations with human women. And that this is how the giants got started. That's from the book of Enoch. That's not from the book of Genesis. I think Genesis 6 is about the the descendants of Seth, which was a godly line of people, uh, intermarrying with the descendants of Cain, an ungodly line of people. And that led to the situation that brought about Noah's flood. That's in the book of Enoch. There's a lot of other weird stuff in the book of Enoch that doesn't really line up with the Bible. Not only that, but Enoch was an early human, right? If you remember Will's class in the genealogy of Christ, uh, he was uh, one of the early humans that lived before the flood, and and God took him as one of the two men who didn't see death with Elijah. And uh, Jude calls him seventh from Adam. It's pretty early on. But the book of Enoch was written around 200 B.C., so thousands of years after the life of Enoch. So here's what I think. I think there was an oral tradition that passed down this saying attributed to Enoch that was true, and Jude used it. That oral tradition also placed that saying in the book of Enoch. Even if Jude used the book of Enoch, that doesn't stamp God's approval on the book of Enoch it just means this statement is true. Inspiration doesn't endorse everything that it, um, that it cites, just the citation itself. Does that make sense? Just the citation. And so uh, it's an interesting thing to think about, but there are a lot of non-inspired works that are quoted in the New Testament. Paul cites some of the poets of his day, some of his contemporary poets some that went before him in order to reach his audience, and Jude is working with a Jewish audience here that's familiar with this saying, and he's, he's doing the same thing. Uh, so it doesn't mean the book of Enoch was inspired. Did God create others when he made Adam and Eve? Where did Cain's wife come from? Uh, I'm glad these are on the same slide, because the second question usually leads to the first. People look at Cain, and they see, well, Adam and Eve, their first children were, Cain and Abel, if they were the only people, Cain had a wife. He couldn't have married his sister, therefore there must have been some other humans created that we didn't read about. But you go back to Paul's sermon on Mars Hill in Acts 17, 25 and following, and he says he made of one man all nations to live on all the face of the earth. That seals it for me. Uh, Even if I don't have Genesis chapter 1 that says God made the first man and the first woman, or made the first man on day day six of creation, made the first woman from the man. If I didn't have that in Genesis 1 and 2, I know from Paul's sermon on Mars Hill that Paul, by inspiration, said, all the human race, every nation of mankind, came from one descendant, from Adam and Eve. And so I don't buy into this mythology that imagines another set of humans to provide, you know, wives for Cain and the other sons of Adam and Eve. Um, well, did he marry his sister? Yeah, I guess so. You know, but things were a little different back then. In a lot of ways, for one thing, the first human specimens were pure, genetically perfect. Adam lived for 930 years. Can you do that? I don't think so. So uh, they could withstand a lot of things that today would produce severe birth defects. And you think about how many descendants you could have after 930 years. How many grandchildren and nieces and nephews. And so it's, it's just a completely different situation than today. And it shouldn't be a problem for us to imagine that God could work out how to... ...bring the human family about through one man and woman. What exactly was Jesus doing between the ages of 12 and 32, and where? Well, we don't know. The Bible closes the door on his story. uh, At the age of 12, as described in Luke chapter 2, when he gets lost, or his parents lose him... ...in the caravan on the way back from Jerusalem to home... Uh, ...they find him among the priests, answering and asking questions... And uh, he tells Joseph, his father, did you not know it would be about my father's business? And Joseph was probably thinking, well, I thought I was your father. But Jesus was saying, I have a heavenly father, and he's my primary responsibility. He went back home with them and was submissive to them in Nazareth. So between the ages of 12 and 32, he was learning carpentry from his father, as all Jewish boys were. He was also studying the scriptures and, uh, you know, just being a normal Jewish man from Nazareth. And, and that's all we know. And a lot of that is conjecture. Does the Red Sea today recede where it parted in Moses' time? Okay, first problem here is nobody knows where the Red Sea is. I know you can get a map out and look up the Red Sea. You see this large body of water between uh, the Sinai Peninsula... And Egypt but that's not necessarily the Red Sea from uh, the scripture days there are a lot of propositions about where this body of water was uh, some say it's a little body of water north of uh, the Gulf of Aqaba called no of Gulf of Suez called Lake Timna others say it's the Gulf of Suez others say it's the Gulf of Aqaba I think most people would say Gulf of Aqaba And um, just nobody knows for sure. So we can't find, uh, what's the question? Does it receive? We can't see the answer to this question because we don't know where the Red Sea of the Bible is located today. The earth has changed. Maybe it doesn't even exist today. But I think what's behind this is this effort by skeptics to do away with the miracle of the parting of the Red Sea and some have said you know that was just a marsh and uh, it was no big deal for wind to dry it up for the Israelites to cross over this shallow pond and it wasn't like God made dry land and had the sea wall up on both sides well the text says first of all that the sea walled up on both sides and they crossed on dry land. But it also says that the Egyptians who followed behind were drowned in the water when God brought the sea back to its original state. So it's like the little boy who was real excited one day, and he was cheering, and he was saying, God is amazing, God is amazing. And this atheist walks up to him. He says, what are you hollering about? And the little boy says, he parted the Red Sea, and the Israelites crossed on dry ground. And he said, son, don't you know that was the Reed Sea, and it was just a marsh. And we know where it's located today. It's just a small body of water. And they crossed over it like they would a ford in the river. And the boy starts howling, God is amazing. God is even more amazing than I ever thought before. And he said, Why are you saying that? I just explain the miracle away. He said he drowned the Egyptians in three inches of water. That's amazing. You know, so either you can you can try to uh, take away the supernatural element at the beginning of the miracle or at the end, or you could have faith and believe in the Bible's account, which says that he had some body of water that the Israelites had to cross, walled up the water on both sides, they crossed on dry land. When the Egyptians followed, the water came crashing down and drowned the enemies of God so that his people could escape. Are frozen embryos human life? This is a very relevant question right now. I don't know if you've been following the news, but the Alabama Supreme Court has made national headlines by declaring frozen embryos human life. Now the story behind this is rather interesting and surprising. I I just heard about it and I thought, I didn't know this was being dealt with at the Supreme Court. But a lawsuit had been brought against a patient in some fertility clinic who broke into the freezer bank where they keep frozen embryos, and tried to grab one or something, got frostbit, dropped it. The embryos fell to the ground and were destroyed. So the parents of those embryos sued for wrongful death. And this went all the way up to our state Supreme Court, in which the Supreme Court said, yes, this is a wrongful death lawsuit because those embryos were human life. There are all kinds of consequences of that, though, when we get into things like IVF and, of course, abortion. And it's very interesting to watch politicians try to weigh in on this. Because they're more concerned about getting votes than they are about what's true and what's false. And just as a side note, this is why our judges are making all the decisions these days. They're not running for election And so we can't weigh in on one side or the other. We're afraid we won't get voted back in. And so we just pass things up into the courts, and then they have to give an answer. They're the only people that will give a straight answer anymore. And that's not the way this country was founded. But that's what we've come to. Um, I'm not trying to get political. I'm just saying this is how this winds up in the Supreme Court. Now, the question is, it's very simple when does life begin that's the question where are you going to draw the line the only place where you can logically draw the line is at conception when um, the egg is fertilized you have a zygote that's conception it turns into a tiny embryo it grows into a fetus which is born into an infant and the stages of life continue from there so I believe that at conception a human life is formed and that settles issues so I guess I'm siding with the Supreme Court of Alabama now one of the controversies here is regarding IVF and I can tell you that in vitro fertilization you don't have to freeze embryos in order to do it I know a lot of Christian people due to their conscience decided we won't make as many embryos, and we'll implant all that are made. And so they take the risk of multiple births, having twins or triplets even, because they have respect for human life and they don't want to freeze embryos. That could one day be destroyed. I've even heard about these snowflake adoptions, which are amazing, where folks will come in and have other people's frozen embryos implanted. Uh, There's not a high success rate on that but that's an interesting thing that people are doing. You can do IVF and follow your conscience in regard to this and have respect for human life without freezing up a whole bunch of embryos. One of the arguments I read against the Alabama Supreme Court case is, well, an embryo, we're talking about embryos that are no bigger than a freckle. So that person must be deciding that life begins at a certain size. And my question is, what size? A freckle? a mole, he's using skin lesions, so, you know, I don't, what size is good for you? And when you get into that, you get into territory that is impossible for a human being to navigate. I mean, who's going to be the person who says, two weeks, three weeks, six weeks, three months, viability, heartbeat? What, what level, and who's going to make that decision? And so what I'm very disappointed in is politicians who claim to be pro-life who are also fighting against this decision because they're worried about their votes. They're trying to skirt this line. They want to be against abortion because it's popular in their area. But they also know that IVF is very popular, so they're trying to do both. And look, if you just look at the truth, you don't have to try to balance both things. It's, it's tough sometimes. And look, um, I've been through infertility issues. I know the emotions behind all that. I have family members have been through that and friends. And there are things that you can do, but you've got to make up your mind about things before you get into it and just decide. And, and this, if you've done things in the past and you've changed your mind about things, you have to leave that behind like any other sin or wrongdoing or regret that you have, and move forward. But as we move forward, let's think about what we're doing and use reason and logic. There's probably going to be a whole lot more said about it in time to come, but um, what little I've gathered from the case, that's where we're at right now. What are your thoughts on people who use fear-mongering to try and get people into Christianity? For example, telling someone they're going to hell for not converting. My thought is... If you are able to convert that person, they they won't stick with it very long if that's all they ever learn. You can only operate on fear to a certain level. Fear is a very poor motivator of Christian things like joy and peace. How can someone who's just scared of going to hell bear the fruit of the Spirit? love joy and peace that doesn't come from abject terror now yeah you might get into the baptistry on that you might get that far but are you going to produce the fruit of the Spirit and the Bible tells us what should motivate us to become Christians is grace the grace of God the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people Titus 2 11, and 12 training us, see it's the grace that's motivating us, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in the present age. Grace is a much better motivator. So if you want to be a successful evangelist, preach the love of God. Tell people about how God loves them and show that in your life. Show your they want love, joy, and peace. They want that. And you're not giving it to them by scaring them to death. Now, hell is scary, and I believe in it. It is scary. And it will get people into the baptistry, some people. But I'm concerned about them getting into the baptistry and becoming a Christian and not having to be drug every place and be told I'm concerned about them standing on their own two feet of faith and doing what's right without somebody hanging over them and say, hey, you know, you're gonna to go to hell if you do that. You're gonna to go to hell if you don't do that. You better come on Sunday nights or you're gonna to go to hell. You better go to the door knocking campaign or you're gonna to go to hell. How far does that get you? So hell is real, don't get me wrong, but if you want to bring people to Christ try grace that's what God gives us will all religions go to heaven or only a specific one all Christians go to heaven Jesus said I'm the way the truth and the life no one comes to the Father except through me so if you're part of a religion that denies Christ if you're part of a religion that rejects the gospel that's not the way to heaven I mean, that, that's just the way it is. Only through Christ is the... If your religion takes you through Him, then that's the way to heaven. Please explain Hebrews 6, 4. It is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and... Uh, the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. That's a sobering passage of scripture to be sure because of that little word impossible. Impossible to repent. First of all, this is talking about people who have become Christians. You look back at verse 4. These are those who have once been enlightened. They've learned the truth. They have tasted the heavenly gift. They have shared in the Holy Spirit. Who could that be but Christians? Tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away. So you see there the possibility of falling away from grace. He says it's impossible for these... have fallen away to restore them again to repentance why because they're crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt you can't be saved while holding Jesus in contempt it's just you're rejecting the Savior you can't be saved without the Savior and some people even after they obey Christ fall away to the extent that they rebel against Him and they become hardened, and that in their callousness and hard heart, it's impossible to renew them to repentance. Not because they've committed some unpardonable sin. I think some people read this and they worry, oh, have I done this? Was it, um, you know, that time I did fill in the blank, did that put me on the point of no return? If you're having that concern, you're not this person, okay? Okay. These are people who hold Jesus in contempt. And so they're the ones holding themselves back from salvation. They're the ones, they don't want to go the way of Jesus. And that's why it's impossible to restore them to repentance. Why is Revelation so unclear compared to the rest of the New Testament? Well, have you read Romans? Uh, I don't know about that rest of the New Testament part. But the reason is, it's written in a particular kind of literature. Any book of the Bible, you need to ask yourself, what kind of literature am I reading? And Revelation is written in a a type of literature that was very well known at the time it was written and very popular at that time called apocalyptic literature. Apocalyptic literature is literature that unveils, which is kind of ironic for us because we're like, this is veiled. But the idea is it unveils truth, it reveals truth, hence the word revelation. Revelation. Unveiled truth. And uh, it makes use of symbolism. There are reasons for this. Um, One of the reasons is persecution. Apocalyptic literature increases with persecution. Uh, Think about a Roman soldier grabbing a book of Revelation. Maybe he can pick up the Greek. But he's reading it and it's just nonsense to him. But a person who understands the symbolism, much of it coming from the Old Testament will know the message of encouragement that it gives and so it's purposely unclear to reveal truth to the believers and to conceal it from the unbelievers the parables work the same way you look at jesus explanation when the apostle said why do you speak in parables in matthew chapter 13 jesus said basically to reveal and to conceal those who have ears to hear they understand it those who to whom uh, Nothing has been given to whom the ability to hear and understand has not been given. Those whose hearts are closed, in other words, uh, it's concealing for them. Is there a significance to 1 Samuel 16, 13 and 14, which states back to back that the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David and departed from Saul? Could God have had some type of presence with one king at a time? Could he have had... Or maybe that meant, could he not have had? Um, So what I think is going on there is there's a changing of the guard. David's anointed. God is done with Saul because of numerous faults and numerous cases of, of unbelief in Saul's regard. And so he takes his spirit from Saul and he gives it to David a spirit of inspiration, a spirit of leadership. I'm not exactly sure what all that, that represents, but that's all that I read into it is this, the spirit was removed from Saul and given to David. Now, the spirit indwells all Christians, so there's a sense. I'm not sure if this is what the question means, but there's a sense in which the spirit can dwell in all of us. But this was a special presence of the spirit belonging only to the rightful heir to the throne. Does Satan rule hell, or is he part of the people suffering in it? Um, Satan does not want to live in hell. The Far Side cartoons are misleading you. Okay, I don't know if you all know what I'm even talking about with Far Side, but uh, there's all these uh, comic strips of Satan in hell like it's his place, and he's torturing people, and we have that in in the popular imagination a lot. But hell is a punishment, as Jesus said in Matthew 25, Prepared for the devil and his angels now in Matthew 25 Jesus says that those who are the goats on his left who didn't come to his aid when he was on earth or when his disciples were on earth in other words who didn't obey the will of his father he said he'll say to them depart from me you cursed I never knew you and he'll send them to the lake of fire hell that is prepared for the devil and his angels I think it's interesting, it wasn't prepared for you and me. It wasn't made for us. God did, didn't intend for his human creation to be in hell. Heaven was prepared for us. But those who reject Christ will find themselves there with the devil and and their angels and his angels who don't want to be there either. Hell is a place where nobody wants to be, and uh, you're going to, if, it, if the place itself doesn't scare you, think about who you might be spending eternity with there, and that might get to you. Though it may not be done anymore, should Christians put their hand on the Bible and swear to tell the truth, if called to testify in court, and then the reference to Jesus saying, do not take oaths is given, Matthew 5, 34 and 35. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount was saying... Um, Let your yes be yes and your no, no. In other words, be a a person of truth that people can believe without you having to swear to God about this or that or swear on your mother's grave or whatever it is that you have to say to convince a person that you're not lying. If you're doing that, if you're going to that desperate a length, you're probably a, a liar that people don't believe. Be a person with the reputation of truthfulness. Now, court cases are different. Um, Jesus in Matthew 26 was put under oath uh, when the high priest said I adjure you he said "Um, tell me whether you are the Son of Man and Jesus submitted to that and admitted that he was the Son of Man which got him convicted and so you have that example and probably some others that you could look into where that procedure in court is a little different situation than the everyday situation that Jesus references in the Sermon on the Mount. Okay, wow. Um, it is 10 till. so thank you for all the questions. Appreciate the effort put into asking them and the study behind it. I can tell you're really digging and looking into the Scriptures for answers. Keep searching, keep looking, we'll keep answering as we can. Tonight we have an invitation song selected. We want to encourage you, if you have a need... To come forward we've talked about the afterlife we talked about heaven we talked about hell we've talked about God's grace and I just want to ask you if if you aren't a Christian to think about the love of God that sent his son Jesus to die on the cross for you I want you to think about the lengths that have been gone to through the ages to bring the gospel to you today going back all the way to the disciples who gave their lives for the sake of the gospel, who wouldn't be silenced even under threat of death. The people who were living when that apocalyptic literature was written, who were persecuted, they gave their lives up. Will we just sit idly by and not accept the gracious gift that God has given us? If you need to become a Christian, don't wait. Come tonight. Repent of your sins. Confess that Jesus is the Son of God and be baptized. If you're not living faithfully... Let us pray with you tonight, repent, and, and God is forgiving. He, as we said, he doesn't want any of us in eternal condemnation. He wants us all to be with him, living together in heaven. If we can help you in any way, come now as we stand and as we sing.